Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. Please give your full attention. This is God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong, rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So for the reading of God's word, may he indeed add his blessing to it. Please join me in prayer as we pray for the Lord's blessing uh, upon the preaching. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again, uh, acknowledging the privilege that we have of being in your presence. Uh, We pray, dear Lord, that you would indeed give us ears to ear and eyes to see. Lord, open our hearts to receive you now. Arrest our attention, Lord. Even as we have heard your word, Lord, be with us now as we hear the preaching of that word. Father, remove, we pray, all those distractions that swirl around in our minds, that would draw us away from giving our full attention to you and your spirit work in our hearts now. Help us to hear and to receive. Help us to bend our lives and our wills towards you. We do pray, Lord, that the instrument of your word this morning and the meditation of all of our hearts would indeed be acceptable in your sight. For it's in Christ's name that we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, when I was younger, uh, I can recall the first time that I heard the phrase, a dirty laundry, uh, that meant something other than just, you know, dirty clothes. Uh, In fact, I think it was that song by Don Henley by the same name, Dirty Laundry. Some of you may remember that song. And I recall as a a young child, I didn't get what that meant. Uh, I didn't know what it, it, I didn't get the, the, the meaning. And so I recall asking my mother what that meant. And, um... As a little kid, she had to explain to me what that meant. And of course, it's the personal issues. It's issues that are personal, usually negative uh, personal issues. They're displayed in public for all to see, um, usually in that context. Uh, those who are well-known celebrities, so it, be, it may be, or uh, those in, in the public eye. Um, they're personal things. The public airing of dirty laundry. Uh, and this, of course, is very entertaining. Uh, very entertaining. That's what the song was saying. 
Right? People love it when you lose. They love dirty laundry. Uh, and people really do love issues. They love drama in their lives. I've always thought it was strange, uh, things like reality TV, as if we don't have enough drama in our own lives, we have to invest ourselves emotionally in some other group of people and all of their drama. Um, and this is so much the case that there used to be, maybe there still is, um, an entire TV station devoted to such things, uh, and this was called uh, Court Cases, and this was called uh, Court TV. Perhaps it's still around, I don't know. Um, but this certainly was the case in the first century in Corinth as well. Uh, disputes uh, over legal matters were brought out and they were dealt with uh, in public halls. And they were connected, the, these public halls, to the forum of the city. They were, solid, they were called basilicas. And this indeed was entertainment for the people of that time. Right? You have to remember in this culture they didn't have uh, things like court TV or television uh, or the people's court or things like that. They didn't have movies. Uh, they didn't have special effects and technology like we have. And so for them, uh, oration, rhetoricians um, would use words, and those were their special effects. Uh, and it was very important for them, speaking, um, you know, rhetorical skills, as we've seen, right? This is one of some of the very things that in the worldly wisdom they were judging Paul for not having. And added to that, the drama of personal disputes made public, it made for a really good show, very good entertainment for those people. Um, a prominent member of the city in these cases would be the judge um, over these hearings, and he would bring down judgment in these cases that were heard. And of course, Paul is telling them here, he sees this as yet another example of the wisdom of this world, of this age, in which the Corinthians were still engaging. They should not be doing so, Paul says. What should they be doing? Right? How should they be settling their disputes? Based on what? The wisdom of this age? Absolutely not, Paul says. Rather on the power and the wisdom of God revealed in the cross of Christ. The people of God are to judge the world and the angels, Paul says. <clears throat> and therefore they need to come to the much lesser task of settling issues in the house of God in a way that what? That honors him. And certainly not going back to the public airing of pagan ways uh, of airing these issues. And so this is the issue that Paul is dealing with here in verses six, uh, sorry, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. And again, it's yet another example, as Paul goes through, of this spiritual immaturity in which they were engaged, the Corinthians in Corinth. And Paul again and again, he returns to that most significant point. And he tells them, because they had been washed and sanctified and had been justified, they were united to Christ and they were to live accordingly. Right? That's something that we see again and again in Paul. He says, see who you are, be who you are. Right? See who you are, be who you are. God's word, God's word here is telling them that believers, by virtue of that, by virtue of their union in Christ, are not to act like the world any longer. And that's what they were doing, right? bringing these suits before the law, before heathen courts. They were acting like their former selves, in worldly wisdom, rather than what? Rather than uh, in accord with their new selves and following Christ and Christ's word. And so we too, brothers and sisters, we too are to take care to, uh, of how we are to live. Right? We, are, we are to take care to live out who we are as citizens of heaven, after the ethic of heaven, our true homeland, 
here in this world and not like this world, not relying on the ways of the world or the wisdom of the world. And again, why? Because we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're united to Christ. and We are to act accordingly. Right? You see who you are. Therefore, be who you are. And so the word of the Lord here in chapter 6 is telling us that because this is the case, because you have been washed and sanctified and justified, and you are to cease living according to the world, and you are to walk in newness of life, Paul says in Romans 6, according to your union with Christ. And so as we look through this passage, we'll see uh, what Paul is doing. Paul, in the first six verses, he corrects them for this immature behavior, and he commands them to settle matters for themselves among themselves, according to the word of God. And then in verses 7 and 8, he calls out the Corinthians for their sinful, dishonest behavior towards one another. Right? They were defrauding and cheating one another. And then lastly, Paul contrasts in verses 9 to 10. He makes this contrast between the conduct that excludes people from the kingdom of God with the Christian's posture before Christ, sinners saved by grace. And so first we see here that Paul corrects their behavior he rebukes them. Uh, the Corinthians, again, were suing one another. They were settling disputes uh, by suing each other in the civil courts. Right Again, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Right? Though clean and made new and justified, they are still yet imperfect. Right? Sin still remains. This is a reality, and so they will have issues. Issues will arise in the church, correct? Of course they do. All churches will. This will happen until when? Until the church triumphant, right, at the end of the age. But the apostle knows this. Paul is not foreign to this concept, and so he's emphatic and he's ardent that when this does happen, when things do come up between believers, members of the church, it must be dealt with in the church, must not be dealt with outside the church in the civil courts. We must know it here as we look at this, and we have to hear what Paul is saying. He is not saying here, and he never says that secular courts have no authority. That's not what he's saying. The point is that the civil courts are made up of the unrighteous, right? The unrighteous, that is the ungodly, that is non-believers. And they are un- incapable of dealing with these matters because what? They do not have, they, they do not see, they cannot evaluate things, these matters, using the lens of God's word. They have a different worldview altogether. The civil courts, of course, are able to come to just conclusions. But the point here from Paul is that believers shouldn't be bringing these personal disputes. He refers to them as trivial matters. He shouldn't be bringing them for justice to the courts, the civil arena, to begin with. That's the problem. These things are to be settled within the church, in the church of Christ, according to the word of Christ. Does God's word give us instruction about this in other places that you can think of? Does he speak to this issue elsewhere? Does the New Testament speak to this issue? Well, yes, it does. And some of you perhaps are thinking, um, uh, remembering Matthew 18, indeed, says this specific thing. Uh, So I'll, I'll read very briefly Matthew 18 starting at verse 15, and we'll see what the word of Christ uh, from the mouth of Christ indeed says about this. Matthew 18, verses 15, starting at verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, 
Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Right? He lays it out there for us. If a brother sins against you, go to him. Settle it before it escalates between you and him. If it doesn't get resolved, further steps are to be taken, as we just heard. But notice Jesus never instructs, he never tells them to take these personal disputes, these issues that have come up. He never says, if all that fails, go to the secular courts and let the civil authorities decide. He never says that. Elsewhere, appeal is made appropriately appropriately to, to the God-ordained authorities of the court, of civil government. Right? We see this in Acts. Paul does this on a number of times. He appeals to, to Caesar for what? For physical protection, to protect him from harm. In Romans 13, indeed, discusses this God-ordained authority of government. But Paul's condemnation here, we have to understand, of the Corinthians, is that they were taking other believers to court over these personal disputes. Trivial, he says, uh, in this passage. Um, And we have to think back. Historically, this is a big problem. Um, The rabbis, as you are well aware of, wrote, they were voluminous writers, right? These uh, uh, writings outside of Scripture. Um, And they said this, the writings say this in, in this matter. It is a statute which binds all Israelites, that if one Israelite has cause against another, it must not be prosecuted before the Gentiles. Right? It must not be prosecuted before the Gentiles. And very much of the things that the rabbis said uh, were skewed and they were off kilter and they were distortions of God's word, to be sure. But this certainly is derived from God's word. Uh, we see this uh, numerous times throughout the Old Testament. The Jews were adamant to avoid pagan courts entirely because of things like Mo, uh, what Moses taught in places like our Old Testament reading this morning in Deuteronomy. They were to deal with these issues themselves. God ordained a mechanism and he gained, ordained leaders to deal with and resolve these issues amongst themselves. Believers are to bring these matters before the saints, not the pagans. And so Paul here, as we move forward, he unloads on them in verse 2, beginning of verse 2, with a series of questions. Right? They should know better than to go to the civil courts, especially about trivial matters. And these questions uh, in this verse, these verses 2 and 3, are designed to explain why they should bring disputes before the godly, before the saints, and not before the civil courts, before the pagans. What does it say there? It's because the saints will judge the world. The saints will judge the world. Uh, And this is something that is quite interesting. If you look back at Matthew uh, 19... Uh, we see something similar in Matthew 18, verse 28. Uh, this is in that uh, following on the, the, the rich young ruler coming to him and asking him questions. Uh, at the end, in verse 28 of chapter 19, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, Judging the twelve tribes of Israel, right? And so there's an overlap here. What's going on? And this, of course, is a reference to final judgment. The final judgment 
being talked of, spoken of here. And so in other words, Christians, if they are competent to judge then the day of judgment along with Christ, to judge the world on the day of judgment, if they're competent to do that, aren't they competent to deal with these lesser manners having to do with issues in this world, these trivial personal disputes that have arisen? The answer, of course, is yes, they should be, right? He's, he's again, there's sarcasm coming through again. And then in verses 3 and 4, the saints won't only participate in judging the world, but it says even the angels, even the angels, right? That's a fascinating thing. I don't know how much you've thought about that. It's uh, quite incredible. And if this is so, and it is, because God's word says it's so, uh, then how much more can these Corinthians settle matters of this life? Right? That's the point that, that, that Paul is making. And notice again here, we see something that we've seen again and again, that the things of this life are dictated by, are driven by, the reality of our participation in the age to come. That is what is to drive us here, not the other way around. And it's repeated an important point. We need to remember it, brothers and sisters, and embrace it. And then verse 5 sheds much light on all of this as it explains further. Um, again, verse 5 says, I say this to your shame. Right? Earlier he has said in, in chapter 5, I don't say this to shame you, but here he says exactly that. Uh, verse 5, again, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is none, no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between brothers? Right? Paul challenges the fact when he says this, when he asks this rhetorical question, he challenges the fact that there's anyone there at all in all their great wisdom who has any wisdom at all. Are none of you wise enough to do this? Right? He's, he's, he's poking at them. It's the height of foolishness to subject themselves to those operating under the same wisdom of this age that Paul has been telling the rebu- the, re- been rebuking the Corinthians for using. Right? They were to reject that, not submit themselves underneath it, to be judged by it. And notice there in that verse as well, verse 5, uh, when it says to settle, uh, to settle, that is very telling. Um, the word that's, that, we, that says to settle a matter there, uh, it's a word that means to come to a decision or to discern. Right? And this is important because these aren't lawsuits amongst believers. These are, these are issues that, that, that require arbitration, right? Arbitration between Christians, not litigation. You see the point there. Paul's talking about uh, these issues being mediated or arbitrated among brothers, he says, not lawsuits. And why? Why would he emphasize that? It's because for Paul, of course, because for God's word, the body of Christ is a family. It's not a business. It's a family, first and foremost. And what they were doing was declaring to the world that the message of the church, that the church was proclaiming, and the provision that God had given for them, it wasn't adequate. It wasn't sufficient. Outside help was needed. That's what they're saying to the world. That's what the onlooking world sees. And if they were doing as they should have been doing, it would have declared the exact opposite. The opposite, the declaration in that case properly would have been that the cross is the solution for all of our problems. All of our problems regarding man's sin and the relational issues that we have, including these disputes that we sometimes have with one another. And we see here, and we can't go into all of it this morning, but see again, all of this breathes the air of membership 
and discipline, appropriate um, the administration of church discipline, and of communication. Right? That is the assumption in the context of all that Paul does. Uh, it's the very fiber of understanding for the apostles and for, uh, for, the apostles and for Paul. Right? Commitments, oversight, love, openness, honesty, relationships. Right? Not, not uh, distant, cold, business-like dealings. And this is the issue that Paul corrects, and he rebukes for the Corinthians there. And then next we see in these two verses, verses 7 and 8, Paul calls out the Christians for their behavior towards one another. Uh, again, verse 7, to have, lawsuits at all with, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Right? And he's saying here that regardless, regardless of how the lawsuit goes, you've already both lost for this reason. You've already lost. Both the one suing and the one being sued, both the winner and the loser, they both lose. It's taking these personal disputes before pagans and dividing, therefore, the body of Christ that is worse than being wronged and defrauded. That's what Paul is saying. Wouldn't it be better to be wronged and defrauded than to divide the, divide the church, make this proclamation to the world, and sit under the wisdom of this age that you should be rejecting? And the problem was, some of them didn't realize this or think about it even. Why is that? It's because they were engaged in questionable, crooked business dealings themselves. The ways of the world with each other. The kind of thing we would expect from the outside world, but not from within the church. And Paul you know, leaves this quite um, vague. He doesn't get into detail. But the basic principle is clear that we can derive from what Paul is saying here. Christians are to settle their personal disputes with other believers without going to civil court. Paul calls them out on this, even as he has just corrected them, rebuked them for doing this very thing. And then finally, we see here in verses 9 to 11, Paul gives the contrast between the struggling sinner with the conduct of the world that excludes them from the kingdom of God. Right Again, verse, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul gives a list here of behaviors. There was common knowledge about these behaviors that it would exclude someone from the kingdom. We see the distinction here between the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's a statement of position, again, righteous and unrighteous. It's a statement of position, similar to being clean or unclean. The unrighteous, what they, it speaks about the people uh, doing things, a lifestyle of behaviors without repentance. And these people, of which we read in these lists, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, what does it say? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he lists all these things, neither the sexual immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this doesn't refer these things to the righteous Christians. Not that they're perfect, but positionally before the Lord, they are righteous. Right? It does not refer to Christians struggling with sin. And that is perhaps the distinction, right? The the righteous struggle and they war against their sins, even as you and I struggle and battle with sins that we commit and we're crushed by our failings and we repent of those sins and we plead for the Lord for deliverance from them. 
What about the unrighteous? The unrighteous don't care. They don't care. Their sinning is their life. There is no repentance. There's no pain of disapproval or guilt from wronging the Lord. It refers to a behavior descriptive and characteristic of people outside of the church. The list here describes pagans, not Christians. Much could be said here, but let's focus on this final word here uh, in our text regarding this. Right, following this list of, of very bad sins, very bad paganish, sinful, wicked behavior, what do we have? The Lord gives us one of the most wonderful declarations in all of Scripture. Right, one of the most glorious uh, declarations in all of Scripture for us, His people. Right, the gospel was preached to the Corinthians. And that glorious, powerful word of the Lord to them bore wonderful fruit in their lives as God's power was manifest through them. And then verse 11, he says this. Listen to it. And such were some of you, that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you hear that? Isn't that, a, isn't that, a, doesn't that warm your heart? Right? Doesn't that, doesn't that impact you? How could it not? Right? Do you hear in this, the then and now, what's being said of these Corinthians, of these Christians, even of you, dear Christian? Hear the contrast between what they once were before the gospel had been preached to them and what they now are as a result of that preached gospel. Some of them were sexually immoral. Some of them were adulterers. Some of them were idolaters. Some of them were homosexuals. Some of them were drunkards, greedy, liars, etc. This is describing gross, rank paganism. He says, and such were some of you. Right? These same people that he says in, in chapter 1 to open the book with in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Corinthian church, to you who are brothers, holy by calling. Why? Because yes, some of them were that. But you were washed. You have been washed. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. And they have been so in the name of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. It's glorious, brothers and sisters. In the focus of this contrast between what they were and what they now are. And for us too. For us too, if you belong to Christ and you've been given a new heart that beats for Him and a sure home in glory, then for you too, right? we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Spirit. If that is true of them, if this was true, and it was, they could no longer live as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was theirs. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. And we should note here also that Paul isn't giving us here an order of salvation, right? as he does elsewhere, like in places uh, like Romans chapter 8, where he does give an order of salvation, though he doesn't mention sanctification there. That's not what he's doing here. What Paul is expressing is a list of some of the benefits, some of the, the wonderful benefits that result from embracing the gospel by grace alone through faith alone. And let's look very briefly at these three glorious gifts, these wonderful benefits of the gospel. The first one he mentions is washed. You were washed. And the way that that word is built, 
uh, the way it's constructed and the tense that it's in, uh, and the prefix that's attached to it, it tells us that it is a complete act. It is a decisive act. It is a definitive act. That is, they were washed completely and definitively, and they are now clean. Right? See who you are. Be who you are. Their position before God and God's posture towards them has changed as a result. And now that this decisive action has been taken, this is true of them. His wrath no longer abides on them. Now they are holy. They are righteous. Even as you, dear Christian, as this is true of you, He has washed you. You are clean. His wrath no longer abides upon you. And then He says you were sanctified. Right? Like washed, it too is built the way the word is to express complete Definitive action. Some refer to this as definitive sanctification is a term that we read when we read the all systematic theologies. And that is that believers have been set apart, right? Sanctified, holified, if you will, if we could make that into a verb. They've been set apart as gods for God. First Corinthians one chapter one, verse thirty, again, listen to what Paul has already told them. Chapter 1, verse 30. Again, a glorious and wonderful verse uh, from 1 Corinthians. And it says this. And this is speaking of the union of the believer. The union with Christ. And because of Him, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But he is our sanctification. And us, we, being united to Him, we are sanctified definitively. Right? The grip of sin, the bonds of sin, the chains of sin upon our lives have been broken, brothers and sisters. And in Christ, we receive all of Christ's saving benefits and have all the guilt of our sins removed forever. Forever. Right? Believe it, brothers and sisters. Let that drive you in your life. Let that transform you as it will through the working of the Spirit as you trust and believe that very thing. We are declared righteous because of Christ's perfect righteousness. It has been credited to us, imputed to us, who have believed in Him and trusted in Him for our life. Does that describe you, even this morning, does that describe you? Are you one who is in Christ, who has trusted in Him for your very life, for all of your life? If you perform that, uh, perhaps the most difficult calisthenic in all of, of life, and that is to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have, you know it's not difficult at all. He changes you. He gives you faith to do so. If he has, then you have been washed and you have been sanctified. And by virtue of that, you are united to him and you are holy. You are holy, dear Christian. You have received the perfect righteousness of Christ himself. Incredible. And now that you've been definitively holified, sanctified, set apart to God, then comes what? The ongoing work as the Lord clean, uh, continues to clean you right, and cleanse you. It's the mortification of your sin and the ongoing living. Vivification is the old word, unto righteousness. That's ongoing sanctification or progressive sanctification over time where God transforms us more and more into the image of His Son. What a merciful God to do this for us, brothers and sisters. What a loving, providing God. And then the third benefit that we see listed here is you've been justified. You've been justified. And like the others, it is built in the same way. It is a definitive act, a completed act. We've spoken much about this in the past. I won't go on. 
uh, for long this morning, but all believers are in right standing before God and regarded as righteous. Right? What is justification? It's your catechism, number 33. You should memorize it well. Meditate upon it. Dwell upon this truth. Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Praise God. What a glorious, what a glorious word. What a glorious truth. And see how it is that these benefits come to us. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that all these blessings come to us by virtue of our union with him, with Jesus. And by the spirit of our God who brings to be the bond between all believers and their living head through faith. Right? Those who were Gentiles, we'll read here. Those who were Gentiles are now the people of God. Composed, they, they are built to compose the living temple, the holy house of God. It no longer matters what they were or what they did before. What is important is that they are alive in Christ. They are in Christ. That is their identity. That is their life. He is their sanctification and redemption. He is our peace, Ephesians 2.14 says. So Paul had told them previously in the passage just before that the one, uh, that the church is not to judge the world outside. Remember that? He just told us that in, in chapter 5. God judges those who are outside. The church is not to judge the world outside of the church. And he now tells us in this passage that the outside world is not to judge the church, right? He says, the, you know, the, it, says it the other way. Look at who you are, Paul says. You see who you are, be who you are. And even for us, dear Christians, see who you are. See what the Bible's declaration is about you who trust and love him. And be who you are. Yes, you once acted in accord to the world, committing all manner of wickedness, all manner of things that would indeed keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power, by the Spirit of our God. Amazing, wonderful. What a glorious, how powerful this Lord is. And so go from here, dear Christian, as you leave, as you descend Mount Zion, spiritual Mount Zion, as you go... Go again, knowing again and knowing afresh that there is no sinner so vile that they are beyond redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? Such were some of you. And know that there are those out there, there are those out there in the world that you will go back into on the other side of this equation. Some who are still in that sinful, unsaved, unjustified, unclean state. And because you know you once were too, let that drive your tender heart towards them. Let, them. let that drive your compassion towards them and your witness before them, always relying in all of it through the Spirit of the Lord. Oh, what a powerful and glorious God we have, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Glorious indeed.